So I want to continue our study in Genesis. I want us to remember where we have been so far. Uh, so far, we are and we are walking through Genesis 12 through 50. And if this is your first time with us today, you can go back and catch some of the older sermons if you want to. Um, but we're doing it from a little different perspective than normally you would walk through a book like Genesis. Uh, a lot of times we walk through solely looking at the, the plot points and the story, and we try to figure some principle out of the story that we can apply to our lives, and we get really excited about that. But um, when we begin to look at the Old Testament scriptures through the lens of an ancient Near Eastern um, learner, inhabitant, teacher, then we begin to approach the scriptures the way Jesus would have. Uh, and so last week we came to the story of Abraham and Sarai or Abram, he's still Abram at this point, and they go into Egypt because there's a famine in the land, and they go to Egypt because Egypt has a river built in, and they have food, and they have all kinds of stuff to take care of people when there is a famine, and he was scared because Sarai was beautiful. I mean, said to be, and through Jewish history, said to have been one of the four most beautiful beautiful Jewish women um, in Jewish history, and so he was scared they were going to kill him and take his wife uh, and so he said, hey, she's my uh, sister. And his hope was in that kind of ancient Near Eastern culture of, of courting, like if you're going to date somebody, you would go to them and you would say, you would go to their father and you would say, I would really like to date your daughter. Here's money. Can I date your daughter? And Abram's the whole idea was, hey, listen, um, we're just going to tell people you're not married and all these people will want to date you and then they're going to bring me a bunch of money because I'm the patriarch of the family. Uh, and when, it was all wonderful and great, right? It's a great idea. All the women in the room are like, man, I wish my husband would do that um, for us. Uh, not. But, uh, but then the one man who could throw fly in that plan was Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh took notice, and he was like, she's mine. Um, we'll worry about getting even later, bring her into my house. And along the way, uh, we found that Pharaoh discovered, wait, you're already married. And he not only sends her back home um, to, to Abram, but also sends like all his possessions. Because he's like, I'm going to be cursed because I'm trying to take this man's wife. And so they end up leaving Egypt with a lot of um, Egypt's treasure. Now, that's, there's a lot of similarities. If you're a student of the Old Testament, on um, the last few weeks we've been through, you should be seeing some parallels for many other stories in Scripture. And we talked about some midrashes, and if that's a new word for you, a midrash is basically an oral tradition that would have been passed along with the scriptures, but weren't technically scriptures, but they were oral traditions that were passed along, kind of like a commentary that eventually a rabbi would write them down, and they became, became a collection or a type of literature. It's not a collection, but a type of literature called a midrash. And we discovered through looking at these midrashes um, that we actually find some meaning to the stories that if you're only looking for plot points in a modern Western mindset, you're going to miss the point of that story. Uh, and, and one that was very evident um, in that case was when Abram chose Sarai to be his wife. And we hear from the very beginning that she's barren. And most of us read that story and we're like, oh, that's interesting. I, I wonder if he would have married her if he had known she was going to be barren. You know, because childbirth was everything at that time, expanding the family. He was the oldest um, in line to become the next patriarch of the family. And it was his responsibility to have kids and continue the lineage of the family. But we, we discovered a midrash that said Abram knew she was barren before he married her. He chose her knowing he would not be able to have children. And we found in that moment, God entered his story and said, I'm going to make a great nation out of your family. And we discovered in that story that God enters into our story when we begin to place a value on others, even when it costs us something. Helping others when it costs us something. God enters into our story at that point. If you're a student of the New Testament, you know, Jesus talked about that all the time in lots of different ways, saying things like, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no greater love than a man would give his life for another. And then he demonstrated it with his own life. I will give my own life for others. And so there's a great value throughout the entire history of Judaism and Christianity 
of giving something of yourself for the benefit of others, which is not really a cultural value today, but it's not ever really been a cultural value. So we've seen some really interesting things through studying chiasms. Um, there are some, some proposed chiasms for this story today, but I'm not actually going to share any of those because I think some of them are a bit of a stretch. Um, but we've also been looking at these chiasms because the brilliance of this type of literature written by an ancient people is just, uh, it's just amazing. It's amazing uh, the stories within the stories, and not just a story within a story or a parallel, but the actual structure of the story tells us things about the story we would have missed had we not seen them. So we're not going to do any chiasms today. Just like last week, there was a midrash that kind of tried to explain Abram's bad behavior, trying to you know pimp his wife out. Uh, there was a, there's a midrash that said, oh yeah, that's not at all what he wanted. And you're like, yeah, I read the story. That's exactly what he was doing. So there are some extra biblical things we go to and we're like, this just makes all this make sense. And then there are some extra biblical things we go to and it's like, oh yeah, that's not true. That's not good. It's not right. And so it's really important that when we approach Scripture in the way that we're doing this, that there's a consistency in the story from beginning to end. And if there's not a consistency, then we've got to ask more questions. It doesn't mean we have to abandon you know, exploring that. It just means we've got to ask more questions because uh, God is a God of consistency. He's not trying to change the story. He's telling the same story from beginning to end. And that's why we're doing Genesis, because Genesis helps us understand the whole rest of the story, okay? Whew. Let's pray and close, because I'm already tired, <laughs> all right? So Genesis chapter 12, I want to jump back to verse 1, and I want to remind us what you've just seen, because we have what Kim has just read, and she did a great job, and I think you pronounced everything the way I would have, so if you were wrong, I would have been wrong too. And we have this interesting story. This is right after they leave Egypt. And so they've got all these possessions from Pharaoh, and he's just like, get out, which is a very interesting parallel to the Exodus. And so now they're leaving with the wealth of Egypt in tow, and Abram and Lot are journeying together, and they stand on this mountainside, and apparently things are not going well. Now, um, I know we've got some, some brothers in the room um, I, do you ever argue with your brothers or not get along? Uh, Jonathan was gone working um, all, summer, all summer, all week with Jake up at uh, camp, and so he came home Friday. I can tell you the story because he's on a plane, he's not, and he's not going to go watch this later. So I can tell you this story, and uh, he's home an hour, an hour, and I'm back in my room, and I'm working on some stuff, and all of a sudden, you know, the volume starts getting louder. You all know with kids, you know what that's like. The volume's getting louder and louder and louder, and he and Malia are going at it. Malia's not in here either. She's helping in another room, so I can talk about her too. Deidre's not here either, but I know better. I've learned not to talk about her. So anyways, um, <clears throat> you know, brothers and siblings have a tendency to not get along. Now, Lot and Abram aren't actually brothers. Uh, you know, Lot is actually his nephew, but he refers to him in some of your translations, depending on the translation that you read, as his brother. But, I mean, they're like a really close relative. But they're standing on this hillside looking out kind of over the, the land. They've got all of this wealth that they've now accumulated between the two of them. And the, Abram decides that it is time to separate and so they look over this land and he tells Lot, you know, look out, what do you want? You get whatever you want. You take what you want, I'll take the rest, or not the rest, or I'll take what's left. But you, and Lot chooses what he believes is the most fertile, best choice to kind of grow his patriarchy. His Badoff, if you all are listening to the um, podcast, The House of the Father, which Lot would then kind of become his own house, and Abram would be his own house. Now that is significant for a number of reasons, and we have to begin rolling in what we've learned previously to understand why this story is so important. And what we remember from the very, our very introduction to Genesis is when he chose to marry Sarai, knowing that he was going to end his lineage, but this was someone who needed a kinsman redeemer because she was technically his niece, 
and her father had died, we saw a midrash that said he died because he gave his allegiance to Abram instead of Nimrod, and Nimrod had him killed. And so he decided, I'm going to care for her. Now, Abram had a brother. He could have said, now you take her because I've got to have kids. But instead he said, no, I'll take her. I'll take her. Basically ending his ability to have a legacy and passing on the patriarchy to another member of the family, which he's going to struggle with this problem later. But it is in this moment of saying, you are more important than my legacy, that God enters his story. And this is what he says in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now I want you to just keep that in your mind, and I also want you to do some kind of practical work with this scripture. Like what does it take for a man to have a great nation? <laughs> I want you to put that in the back of your head and maybe even try to think, maybe what would Abram be thinking at this moment? Because he's already made the decision to to marry Sarai, who's barren, and now God is saying, I'm going to make you a great nation. Now, there are four themes throughout Genesis 12 through 50 that I want us to understand and I want us to take away from here. Three of them are about Abram. One of them is about God because the problem with studying someone like Abraham is we have a tendency to read someone like that and just say, well, I'll never be like that. I mean, that's like the superstar. That's like, you know, the favor of the family. That's like the one who never does anything wrong. And usually we read Abraham in that way, and we no longer view his life as something we can learn from or as someone whose story might in some ways mimic our story because he's just too great. But there are... Four lessons I want us to learn through this because I believe God wants to do many things in our lives. While he may not be calling you to a great nation, God is calling you to something. The first one is this. Our four primary themes is that um, lot. Why do I have lot there? Okay, I will go before. Um, Abram. I really don't remember putting lot there. Abram sacrificed for the benefit of us. Forget Lot. All right. Abram sacrificed for the benefit of others. We see that with Sarai. We're going to see, we see that here when he says, Lot, you pick the best land. I'll take whatever's left. Uh, we just see within him, I'm willing to look after the needs of others. And that is something God highly, highly values. Like if you're here and you kind of, you woke up at four this morning and you're a little tired, God highly desires when we look after others, even before ourselves. That is one of the most basic values of Christianity. I would not say that the average person who's not a Christian would say that's one of our most fundamental basic values. That's not often what is seen. But that is what has been taught through scriptures and what Jesus modeled for us. And Abram, Abram, sacrifice for the benefit of others. Thank you, Jeremy, our magic worker up there. Abram was willing to follow God, and that was the call that he gave on his life. But if you'll remember, um, we found a midrash that told us more about Abram's early life that mimicked, in some ways, Jesus's. When he was born, Nimrod, uh, Nimrod stargazers came to him and said, um, your chief um, idol builder, your chief religious man, um, he's going to have a son and that son is going to dethrone you. And so he said, well, we need to kill that boy. And it was Abram. And he told Terah, Abram's dad, you need to kill him. And instead of doing that, the Midrash tells us that he sent him away and Abram lived the first 10 years of his life in a cave, just being protected from being killed. And then the Midrash goes on to say that he then moved and uh, lived with Noah and Shem for a period of time where he would have learned all of these things about God and the flood and um, all these different events. Um, And then when he came back, we have this encounter um, that we're not going to rehash all of that. But um, Abram was not only willing to follow God, Abram was in a moment where he needed a rescue because Nimrod was still gunning for him. He needed a rescue, and he had a call from God. And if you are a follower of Jesus, what I know about you is 
you also have those two things in your life. You felt a need for a rescue and you felt a call from God and so you have chosen to follow him. Now that's very different from just saying I'm a Christian, but someone who's saying I'm structuring the rest of my life about following Christ, you felt you needed a rescue and you felt God was telling you to follow him and that's where you are now. Abram was willing to follow God and then what we're going to spend most of the rest of our time today talking about is Abram learned from his mistakes. But the fourth one is one I want you to take away in that God is always faithful even when we are not. And some of you grew up in a, very, in, a, in a religious system that taught the very opposite. God is only faithful when you are faithful. But that's not what we see throughout Scripture, and that's certainly not what we see in Abram's life. Abram lacked faithfulness many times, and God was still faithful to him. His children lacked faithfulness many times, and yet God was still faithful to them. You will lack faithfulness many times, and God will remain faithful to you. It is his character. It is who he is. Now, as we come to this story, um, why is this story of him separating so much? And I do, I do want you to do some practical work because this is one of the ways, this is a discipline in studying scripture that we don't just read it and say, well, that's what it is. Um, if we don't ask why questions, we become religious robots. We memorize, we spout off constant sayings and phrases when we are just robots taking it in and we don't ask why questions we miss usually what it's really all about so you're abram and you've just married your wife one of the most beautiful women in the world and god is saying a whole nation is going to come from you what has to happen for all of that to happen would somebody just gander a guess uh, pg please what's going to have to happen do, do what? A miracle or, what did you say, Paul? Somebody's got to get pregnant, right? <laughs> I mean, let's just call it how it is. Somebody's got to get pregnant. I mean, that's a really small nation. I, I'd like to think sometimes I'm a nation into myself. Deidre thinks sometimes I feel that way. Like, I'm just, it's just, you know, my, my nation is really all there is. And, but if you're going to have a nation and you're going to fulfill this calling, and this is a problem that many of us have, Yes, it is going to take a miracle, but we only know that because we got the rest of the story to study. But at this point in the story, Abram doesn't know what, how this is all going to happen. But God is faithful. So one of the questions, and if you're following along on, uh, with Marty Solomon on the, the Baymont podcast, one of the questions that he asks is, why in the world did he bring Lot to begin with? Lot should have gone on and done his own thing anyways. There was no reason to bring Lot with him. And he poses a question that I think is a very good question, and it is simply this. If you are Abram and you are now promised, but also feel expected to birth a nation, you begin to think about how that's going to work. And so up to this time, he's kept Lot with him, as, as Marty Solomon suggests. Perhaps the nation is, my job is to protect this family while the nation happens through Lot. Now, I know people who feel God has called them to something great, even just called them to something different. At some point along the way, they feel this pressure to produce the thing God said he's going to do. I struggle with this and have struggled with this all my life, or all my life as a preacher at least. That's most of my life at this point, but not all my life. Feeling God has said, Mark, this is what I want you to do, and yet then saying, okay, God, step back. I got this. I'm going to take care of this. And every time I do that, it fails, and I get frustrated. And guess who I question? And it's not me. Because God, you said you were going to do this. And just like when our kids kind of take the reins and they ignore all the counsel we give them, and they just decide to go chart their own course, that's my story. I'm the kid, and, and my parents have prayed that I would have a kid just like me, and I did. 
who has to experience something for themselves but cannot be told. I've made so many mistakes in my life and I've made so, so many mistakes as a pastor saying to God, sit back God, I got this. Now what ends up happening, it is funny, and it is, it's really funny when you look back. And in the moment it's not funny because there's an immense res, uh, feeling of responsibility. But what ends up happening is you end up losing your faith because God doesn't end up working in your concocted schemes like, hey, you know what you should do, Sarah? Uh, you should go pretend to be my sister, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to collect all this money, all this dowry, but you just don't, don't actually go on a date with them, right? Let's get that straight. But I'm just going to take all that money, and it's going to be perfect. Like, this is perfect. This is like a foolproof plan. Uh, what? Pharaoh? What? Pharaoh? What? So one of the things I value about Abram is he makes mistakes, but he learns from those mistakes. And there are a lot of us that struggle with learning from our mistakes. You see, we feel shame at having mistakes, which is crazy, because so does the person to your left, right, front, and back of you. But somehow we are not supposed to make those mistakes. And sometimes we look at characters like Abram and go, well, maybe that's, you know, maybe Deidre, we're a little low on money. I mean, I could go stand out at Walmart with my cardboard sign, or... Let's just say you're available. See what happens. Just see what happens. And the thing I love about Abram is he realizes maybe I should trust God's plan and not concoct my own. Now, what we also know about him is that Abram has a very short memory because Abram's going to do this again. Chapter 20, we get to chapter 20. Abram does it again. And then what we're going to see is, and this is why parenting is so important, Abram passes it along because then his son Isaac does it with Rebekah. But what I love about Abram is he learns from his mistakes, and at least in this moment, even though he's going to repeat it again later, he's like, I need to trust God and his story, and I need to stop concocting these plan B's. And so for many of us, we struggle with that. And I want to address why we struggle with that in just a minute. But the reality is, is that God's plans don't always make sense to us. And there's something about the way we have a modern Western mindset that says, if I'm going to do something or commit to something, I'm, it needs to make sense to me. But there are times... That life just doesn't make sense and what God wants to do doesn't make sense. But yet when we begin to follow that, all of a sudden life just becomes amazing. I'm a firm believer life is meant to be an adventure. We are not meant to just get through life, go to work, come home, go to work, come home, go to work, come home, plan well enough so that eventually we get to retire and then you know we can live the life that we really always wanted to live. Life is meant to be an adventure from, from day one to the very last day. And God is an adventurous God who is doing adventurous things and involving us in it. God's plans don't always make sense to us. And as a result, many people, myself included, who feel a great calling, forget that God is the one who is supposed to make it happen. It seems that he tried to do that with Sarah. He also tried to do that with Lot. And we're going to read here shortly, not today, that eventually he's like, oh, now I can't even trust Lot. Now I'm going to have to trust someone else down the line to actually be this nation that God's going to do. And yet God has a plan that doesn't make sense that he's called him to, and God is faithful, always faithful. Wherever you are in your spiritual journey, Abram had to grow to be the person that we talk about all the time. He did not start out that way. He had to grow towards it. So will you. So will you. Abram was willing to learn from his mistakes. Now I want to be careful and 
Um, I don't want to enter in, especially when we've got some students in the room and we've got people starting out in life and they're getting ready, they're going in, in, they're in college or they're just starting to work as an adult or maybe they're thinking about what they're going to study in college. The idea that, well, um, God's, I'm just going to trust God. There's trusting God and then there's getting to work. And I do not in any way want to come across that the getting to work doesn't matter because you're going to get real hungry if you don't get to work. We all have to work. One of the things I love about hanging out with entrepreneurs is entrepreneurs take risks. They take risks and they invest and they work hard, at least if they are going to be an entrepreneur that lasts. Entrepreneurs that don't take risks and entrepreneurs that don't work hard do not stay entrepreneurs. They go work for somebody else because it will never work out if you're not willing to take risks and work hard. I love hanging out with entrepreneurs. We had some church planters with us last week that are working to plant. They're taking risks. They're investing. They're working hard. They've had some really celebratory moments, and they've had some really grieving moments um, throughout just this process, and they've not even launched yet. They're just now trying to get people in the core group, and, and they're already grieving lots of hurt that happens along the way. We have to trust God that God's going to do the thing that matters that is going to happen. But Abram still had to work. He still had to get everybody together. He still had to pack up all their possessions. He still had to get all of the livestock and make sure they had plenty of people to move the livestock where it needed to go. And he still had to travel to a new land. They still had to find water along the way. They still had to feed everybody. And then they had to find a place where they could settle. They had to pitch their tent. And then they had to go down to Egypt because there's no food and everybody's starving because there's a famine. And now they're headed back out and they're going to do it all again and start all over again. There was a lot of work involved here that Abram, if he had just sat there and said, okay, God, I'm ready. Just transport us where we're supposed to be. And some of us approach the calling of God in this very way. Maybe you're someone who doesn't question and you don't try to concoct plan B, but maybe you just sit and actually don't do anything because, well, I'm just waiting and if it's God, then it'll just happen. And I just don't read that that happens very often in Scripture. There's always work involved. There's always hard work involved. Now, does it mean some of us who are, are workaholics that that hard work is involved, but hard work is a necessity if you're going to move forward. I mean, the Bible even goes on to say, if someone's not willing to work, don't feed them. Like, if they're not willing to contribute, we're not going to rescue them. They've got to rescue themselves to some point. All right. So many people who feel a great calling forget that God is the one who's supposed to make it happen. Um, but Abram was learning from his mistakes. He was beginning to learn to trust God. And then we move into this next part of the story in which he says, Lot, where do you want to go? You pick the place where you want to be. You go settle. And Abram was going to go and follow God. Now, the text tells us that Lot begins to, to move around and kind of travel. And like Abram, he's not building a house out of timber or rock or whatever. He's pitching tents, which are easily moved to another location. And so he keeps moving and eventually moves into Sodom. It's our first introduction to um, the places of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we get this introductory description that it was a place where a lot of evil happened. A lot of just really depraved stuff happens. Um, I thought it would be good when we begin to bring Sodom up just to remind us uh, what Ezekiel said was the sin of Sodom. And this is Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49. And he says this, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. <laughs> Ouch. Ouch. Sodom's not the purpose of our discussion for today, but that's where he ends up. And when he ends up into this place, things begin to go wrong. Sometimes, I mean, this is, that would be like a low-lying fruit. Sometimes the thing that looks like the best thing you can have actually turns out to be the worst thing you could have. I mean, that's like 
easy, easy stuff. That's not really the point of this story. But it says in Genesis, uh, or follow along with my notes. Siri just Siri doesn't understand my accent. When Abram trusted God's plan, God immediately re-entered his story. He separates from Lot. He says, I'm going to follow God in his story. I'm not going to trust Lot to be the place where the nation comes from. I don't know how this is going to work out, but I'm going to go just follow God and see what God's going to do. And the moment that he separates from Lot, and the moment that he does that, we read this in Genesis 13, verse 12, Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. I think one of the most common questions I get from people, common concerns, common fears, frustrations, the thing in which a person ends up walking away from faith is the question of where is God? We ask that question a number of different reasons. Something goes wrong, terribly wrong. Where is God? Our fears start taking over, our heart beats fast in our chest, our adrenaline starts spiking, our brains run through one nightmare scenario after the other, and we ask, where is God? They're saying, where is God? You are not God, and you cannot say, oh, well, here he is. Sometimes we can, but most of the times when we do that, we end up with some kind of platitude that makes things worse and don't actually help. Well, God's here. He's working things out. Yes, absolutely true. 100% believe that. Not helpful in that moment in which you're saying, where is God? Now, part of the problem with that and part of the reason we get to that place is we are a very individualized people and ancient Near Easterns were a very community-based people. And as individuals, we tend to come to God and say, where are you? Whereas we read in the, in the story of the fall, we found a chiasm in which the, the primary question is God saying, no, where are you? Where are you? God gets to ask that question, not us. But when we become the center of our world, we feel entitled to say, God, you should be taking care of these things. That's why I have you around. And then we wonder, why is God not entering into my story? And one of the most basic characteristics we have to have if we're going to approach God is a heart of humility that says, I will come however you want me to come to you, but I just want to be where you are. And that feels good when life's going well, but it doesn't feel good when life's going bad, and you're not sure what the solution's going to be. You're not even sure there could be a solution, and you're praying, and the, the prayers are going on unanswered, and you're just still wondering, probably what's also going in Abram's mind, how's this whole nation thing going to work, God? Because... Like, I mean, I know how babies are born, but do you? I mean, it seems like you might have chosen prematurely here. I imagine he was asking those same questions, God. So where are you? But regardless in this moment, he says, I'm going to trust you, and God shows up. You may be in a place, if you're asking the question, where is God, that God is simply saying, trust me, and if you will trust him, God will re-enter your story just like he re-entered Abram's. We then go from this story um, into this, and I'm not going to read this um, because we just don't have time, but um, we then have this crazy war that happens, which is, you know, if you like like war stories, you would really want to like to go read the rest of this story. And we have these um, 
four kings on one side and these five kings on the other and there's this one main king and he's kind of ruled everybody for 12 years and then um, this one group decides that we don't want to be ruled by them anymore we will have our own kingdoms we want to be the kingdom of our own world and so we're going to rebel and we're going to go fight and then they did go fight and at this point lot is living in sodom and sodom and gomorrah's kings are both a part of this group rebelling and crazy enough they got crushed and when you get crushed in battle you lose everything like if they let you live they take all your stuff and if you've got anybody that can work at the land or you can you know push livestock or you can lift a rock or something hey you're coming with us because we need you to go to work for us now and so they start taking people and they take the possessions and the livestock and anything of any value and now it's theirs And this is what happens to Lot. He is caught up in this big battle and they lose. And now Lot and all of his family and all of his possessions are now been taken captive by this opposing side. And Abram reenters the story and we find that in this next part of the story, Abram comes in and and just kicks butt. I mean, he really does. I mean, pardon my French, but that's exactly what happens. He walks in and he just starts, they, they just wipe everybody out. I want you to know that if you'll trust God's plan, He will enter your story. He brought Lot. He let Lot pick the land. Lot went out. He was trusting his story. Sometimes we struggle to trust today because um, we've been told to trust leaders that have let us down. They've been untrustworthy. When you've trusted someone in leadership that is untrustworthy, it is very hard to trust again. And there are some people that enter into our churches and they come in very hesitant because they watch the news and they know there are a lot of untrustworthy church leaders out there right now. And so they're very nervous. Trust is built over time. It is not just handed over. Some of us struggle to trust because we've been around people who were untrustworthy. If you've been around an untrustworthy religious leader, you may find it very hard to trust God. By extension, they seem like they're part of the same system, even if God is so much better and so much different. But sometimes that's the reality. We've been told to trust untrustworthy leaders, and we've been burned. Sometimes we fear that the one we're trusting doesn't actually really care about us and have our best interest at heart. Sometimes we just get so enamored with what we think should happen, we can't trust anybody else like we can trust ourselves, and so we're just going to make it happen. It just needs to happen. Usually what ends up happening in a trust scenario is we just become either impatient, God, why are you taking so long, or we become distracted. God, i got other things I need to work on. I'm just not worried about that thing right now. And it's hard to trust. But Abraham is trusting the story at this point. I imagine for him, if there's a part of him thinking, gosh, we've got to go rescue Lot, because I mean, he is still kind of my plan B. If that's the way he's thinking, the rest of the story doesn't play out in that way, because we have this moment where he comes in, he's got two other friends that he's made, they all partner together, they come in, they chase him down, they wipe out the offending army, they rescue the people, and then these kings come to, to Abram, and they offer him this concession. This is Genesis 14, verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, give me the people, And the people at this point would have been included, Lot and his family. Give me the people, but take the goods for yourself. In other words, you can have all the stuff, but I want the people. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God, most high possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. In other words, you can keep Lot. You can keep your stuff. I mean, I got to let my people eat, and you know they've earned something for coming out here and fighting with me and risking their lives. But other than that, you get to keep it all. So he gives up Lot not once but twice. He gives up Plan B twice. Abram was willing to learn from his mistakes. 
And Abram was willing to trust God's plan. These are some questions I want to leave you with today. Because I don't know where you are, but I will tell you this. I have zero interest in religious activities. I have zero interest. Like, I've got plenty of things I like to do. Religious stuff ain't one of them. But I have found Jesus. And wherever he's at, I've just found that's way better than anywhere else I could be. So in other words, if Jesus is here with us, this is where I want to be. If Jesus isn't here with us, this is not where I want to be. And I feel like that is an honest thing that every one of us should be able to say the very same thing. But the question being, what if I feel like he's not with me? I mean, he's promised me a nation, but I've got a wife who can't have kids. I mean, come on. Anybody can do the math. So here are some questions I would leave with you because that's not your calling. Um, but whatever your calling may be or whatever you perceive it may be, um, first question would be this, which of your plans have gone wrong? When I talk to church planners today, I talk about what we did in the early days that attracted a lot of people. But it didn't really help people follow Jesus. The snow machine was cool, but it was a disaster. Some of you who have been around remember that. The hazer was awesome until we set the fire alarm off in the theater. I mean, we did stuff no other church in town was doing, and like lots of people were coming. And when it came to following Jesus, which is what this is all about, it just felt very empty. It doesn't mean that no one that thought that Hazer was cool didn't come to know Jesus because of that Hazer. I mean, probably not. But I'm not saying it can't happen. Which of our plans have gone wrong? Abram had some plans, and a lot of his went wrong. Second question you should ask yourself is, do you blame God for this? Or yourself? Or do you hold that guilt and shame in? Because something didn't work out the way you thought it was supposed to. Another question I would ask you is, what if God is doing something bigger than you can plan for? Now, big is a very subjective word that in American churches, we have to be very careful with what that looks like because God is doing some big things, but that doesn't include lots and lots and lots of people. doesn't mean that when God does big things, it doesn't include lots and lots and lots of people, but that is not the expectation of big. Big is God changing the world through us. It's a story he's been telling from the very beginning, and he's inviting us to be a part of it. What if he's doing something and you are giving up because you know what? I don't see it yet, and he's, it's because the plan is bigger than you can fathom. See, that was the Abram story. He's starting to realize this plan is bigger than I can really fathom. I'm not sure how this is going to work out. And we find out that later they both, he and Sarah, both kind of give up on the plan. Even and then when God kind of announces this is how the plans come to fruition, it's about to happen right now. Like like they laugh. Like whatever, God, we gave up on that a long time ago. What if God is doing something bigger than you can plan for? Another question I would ask you is this. Where do you need to let go of the reins? And this isn't just in church, and this isn't just in, I feel like God wants me a missionary, He wants me to church plant a church, or He wants me to be a pastor, or He wants me to whatever. I, I mean, this is in your family. This is in your marriage. This is at work. This is with your neighbors. One of the things I love about Josh, who's got all our boys headed down to Costa Rica right now, is I mean, he got no, nobody, nobody uh, commissioned him, and nobody hired him, and nobody pays him. He just said, "I want to invest in these kids." And two became four, and four became eight, and before long, eight became most of the team. And then last Christmas, they had to get another church that would open the doors so they could baptize some of these basketball players. Never gone to church before. 
the only experience they had were with their buddies saying, hey, we're doing this Bible study, you should come. And now they're in Costa Rica. And it all started with him saying, you know, I just really want to invest in these kids. Sometimes God's plans are bigger than we can imagine. And sometimes when we come up with plan B, we need to let go of the reins and let God do what God's going to do. Or do you need to let go of the reins? The fifth question, the last question I would ask you is this. Um, what if your tight grip of control on how things go in your life are actually derailing your life? And I'm telling this to a group of people that have been told through leadership books and through seminars and through employers and through churches that you need to be intentional about every moment of your life. You've got to plan every moment of your life. I mean, I have friends. I don't understand them. I think there's something wrong with them. But, I mean, they literally on a night out get spreadsheets put together. Like, let's work on our family spreadsheet. Like, if Deidre were to say, hey, I've got a great date idea. Let's go work on a spreadsheet. I'd be like, have fun. <laughs> have fun, because I will not be there. I'm not saying you shouldn't have a spreadsheet. I'm just saying, if you don't let God do what only God can do, you're going to miss what God wants to do. All right, I'm going long here. I just I wanted to share this. I came across this this week, and I just thought it was important to share, and I think it's important for our church. I think it's important for all churches. I think it's important for you as a person who needs friends, needs relationships. One of the things I hate about this moment are that you all are all staring at me, and yet we have, I don't know how many wonderful people in this room. I'm supposed to come up with something... Uh, inspiring and helpful and bring out some cool stuff like Abram pimping his wife out, which no pastor does because Abram's like the father of all church, right? But you guys have something to offer each other that I cannot. And investing in each other's lives will probably pay off in your faith better than just me investing in you. Conversations are way better than lectures. Questions are way more important than answers. And friends, that's what church is supposed to be. In fact, it's a more modern movement to have this lecture hall. This is a modern thing. But when you begin investing in each other and asking questions of each other and telling each other, you know what, these are the questions I have and this is what I'm learning God enters the story because guess what? God still enters the story of people who say, you are important and I'm going to invest in you. You could do that here, but you can do that wherever you go. Study was done in May 2022, uh, 2021, so middle of the pandemic. This is middle of the pandemic, so we've got to account for that. We're not out of the pandemic. We've been talking for the last few weeks about what happens when you come out of a a mass um, or collective trauma moment, and the pandemic was a collective trauma moment for us. The Survey um, Center on American Life did this study back in, in May 2021, and this is a snippet of what they said. They said, science suggests that the role of friends in American social life is experiencing a pronounced decline. Americans report having fewer close friendships than they once did, talking to their friends less often, and relying less on their friends for personal support. Friend being defined as someone other than their family, other than a family member. Of the people they surveyed, 49% had fewer than three close friends. 49% had fewer than three close friends. Like some of you were like, man, I wish I had two friends. Only 13% have 10 or more close friends. 12% have zero close friends in those surveyed. 12%, zero close friends, 18 and older. That's the, the survey group, 18 and older. 51% are satisfied with the number of close friends they currently have. Because some of us, let's be honest, I'm happy with no friends. And some of us, we would just rather have 50 friends. You know, we're all built a little bit differently in that regard. But the, per the point of this is, 
come out of this collective trauma moment means that we have to befriend each other. And most of us feel the need to do that, but we don't know what to do about it. I would encourage you that our future as a church depends on us being friends with each other. And friends with each other means we share stuff with each other that doesn't go other places, but we also get to be authentically who we are and not pretend to be somebody else, and yet we handle each other with care and concern. And just like Abram and Sarah, if you need something from me, I will sacrifice so you have it. This is the church. Jesus said things like, love your neighbor as yourself. He said, there's no greater love than a man who would give his life for another. He said, if you, if you give or clothe or feed the least of these, it's the exact same thing as if you had done it to me. Relationships are everything. First with God, second with everybody else. But we live in a culture that we are closing in. We are making the circle smaller. We are just becoming more individualized. And as we become more individualized, our world revolves more just around us and loneliness is growing. I feel like that was important to share. All right. Last thing, last thing really. All you who doubt that this is the last thing, it's the last note on my page. If you're our guest today, people give me a hard time about lots of things in this church, but so if they give you a hard thing about, like I've been trying to, I, I have said from the very beginning, why don't we do Life is a Highway? That should be our theme song as a church. Life is a Highway. We're called Journey. Come on. It's happened one time in 15 years. One time in 15 years it's happened. And mostly just get jokes from people. They make fun of me for it. Isn't that a great song? Y'all are ready to go. You don't care about life's a highway. All right. Um, learn from your mistakes. Let go of the reins. Trust God. Trust His story. God plans to do amazing things in your life but we have to let him. I'm believing that for our church. I'm believing that for our children. I'm believing that for our youth. I believe God has brought us a, a, a fabulous um, youth leader in Jimmy and his wife, Frances. She's not a youth leader, but I mean, she may be, but she's not. But uh, Jimmy's not Jimmy without Francis, and vice versa. God's doing some amazing things in our church. God's doing amazing things in our lives. God wants to do amazing things in our communities. And if you're our guest today, God wants to do an amazing thing with your life, whether you do life with us or someone else. Do life with someone. Let's learn from Abram. Let's change the world, starting with our own.